0: Amen. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community this morning. Hey, I I did get a little bit of good news right before the nine o'clock service, so some of you might even have a later update than this, but uh, in the rescue effort for the boys that are trapped in the cave in Thailand, uh, as of nine there were six of them that have been rescued. So uh, so that is just amazing there. Continue to be praying for them and for their families and for the rescue efforts of those uh, going after those kids there in that cave. Um, Hey, this morning we're going to be hitting a topic that uh, in, in some ways, it could, uh, it, it can be controversial. But I'm praying that there's just an, an atmosphere of grace would be in this place, an atmosphere of humility would be in this place as we enter into some of uh, some of the text this morning. Uh, that you would be quick to give grace to me if I if I say a phrase that's off, and that I'd be quick to give grace to you all as we kind of have maybe today can starts a conversation that we continue to have in the days, weeks, and months that would follow from it. Um, so uh, my other hope and prayer for this morning is that the sermon would make sense. Uh, I, yesterday I took my boys to see. Incredibles 2, which is a good movie, but if you've seen it, there's a short film right in front of it that makes absolutely no sense. And so, like, if you've seen it and you understand the imagery and all that, please tell me. I want to know. Um, so, it's, it's crazy. And if you hadn't seen it, just let me know what you think. So, uh, hey, look, so there was a group of churches on the island of Crete about 30 years after the time of Christ that I believe faced a few challenges that the church faces today. Now, even though it's 30 years after the time of Christ, it's, you know, it's close to the time of Christ, the time when he taught, when he ministered, um, the, the churches on Crete, they were in a completely different context than, than the area in which Jesus ministered, because they were really in a completely different culture, where Jesus taught and ministered was predominantly around Jerusalem and in Galilee, and, and they were just a, a different culture, it was a different setting, because the people in those areas were brought up primarily Jewish. They, many of them had been brought up holding to the Old Testament teaching and law. And so as a result, many of the people there had strong examples of what a life of faith looked like. That when you place your faith in God, when you respond to God's word, that when when God's word teaches and corrects you, it brings about a change in your life. And so it it impacts your daily living. They had been brought up seeing this and and walking and living in that reality. So when Christ comes and he preaches his gospel and he shares his good news, many of them were able to see Jesus as a culmination of that faith, really the the, the fulfillment of, of that faith. And so they were able to respond to Jesus. When Jesus taught and and, and gave his instructions and and gave his commands, they were able to see, okay, yes, this is what he said. This is the change that should happen in my life. This is now then is how I incorporate that teaching into my life. Um, They had so many of them as they were following Jesus were well on their way to living a life of faith because they had their roots in, in that faith system, if you will. Not the case for those in Crete. In Crete, if they had any religious background, it was from a pagan background that worshipped false gods and goddesses. Uh, once more, history lets us know that the people of Crete, the Cretans, were uh, were very immoral, just wicked and, and and so perverse that their depravity was known far and wide, not just among the Jews and the Christians, but among just all the nations. They were known as, as, as liars and gluttons and criminals and just overall delinquents. Like, I don't know, I don't have the right words to really describe it, but, but their depravity, again, was known far and wide. But nevertheless, the gospel begins to take root among them. They begin to hear this message of hope that their past sins don't define them. They begin to hear this hope that God loves them, that God's made a way to redeem and to reconcile them. And they begin to respond to it. They trust in Jesus. They confess their sin. They repent of their sin and and they place their faith in him. And now these people, they're having their hearts and their lives changed and they want to know how do we live out this faith? How does our faith continue to make a a a tangible difference in my life and in the lives of those around me. What they needed, they they needed to be discipled. They needed to be discipled in this faith. They needed to know how to rebuild their lives in such a way to where their faith in Christ was at the center, and it informed the actions that they took. They needed a picture. They needed a model. They needed an example that they could follow to show them what it looks like to live out one's faith in their day-to-day living. Once more, this wasn't just for convenience, this example, this picture wasn't just for convenience and their personal growth. This picture, this model was needed to also, in many ways, safeguard the ministry of their churches— to safeguard it from any of those that might distort the message and the hope of the gospel. Because there were some that had worked their way into the church, that had started to, to defame and kind of blaspheme the hope of the gospel with how they were living. And so this model, if you will, this picture, this example that they needed would be a way to both help the people of Crete grow in their faith and also help them reject and refute that which might lead them astray. And that's why I say they face some similar challenges that face the church today. Because I think that example is still needed. I think that picture, I think that model is still needed for, for God's people today. We need to see what it looks like for someone to... Um yeah, for someone to grapple with their sin, for someone to, to see and know that, hey, this which is in me is broken, it's off. It, it, am I hopeless or is there hope here? And, and see, oh wait, no, there's Christ has given hope. Christ has given redemption and his word is helping me see what's broken, help me see what's off. And so we need a picture of someone that, that responds to the hope of Christ, sees the correction of his word, and knows that, that they can step into that forgiveness and that wholeness and how Christ continues uh, to the call to help them grow in godliness and holiness and the righteousness of his word. We need that example of someone that that, that walks that, someone that shows that, someone that, that demonstrates that with the way that they live, being able to see their sin, confess it, tr- continually trust in Christ and grow in his righteousness. Once more, we need an example of someone that will, will live with that Christian ethic. We need someone that will, will live with, with the, those, the, the values and the virtues of his word so that we can see genuine expressions of faith today. Because I think there are so oftentimes we can see a false expression of faith where people take bits and pieces of the Christian message and, and are there people that try to hijack the hope of the gospel, maybe even hijack the ministry of the church and use it to serve and promote their selfish sins and, and, their, and their sinful desires. And so those are some of the exact same challenges that were facing the churches in Crete some 2,000 years ago. And I think it's some of the same challenges that, that the church can face even today. And it's to that situation that the Apostle Paul writes a letter to one of his disciples, one of his protégés in the faith, faith, a man by the name of Titus. And so go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 is going to be our primary text. This is a short book, just three chapters long, uh, written to uh, Titus, whom Paul has left on the island of Crete to serve these churches. So we're going to be uh, in the entirety of chapter 1 this morning. uh, We're going to focus in on the first half, and then we'll kind of hit the, the end in one big, broad swipe. So have I filibustered long enough for everyone to get to Titus chapter 1. Cool, rocking. I'm glad, glad we're there. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to find, just three chapters. So if you need to ta- use the table of contents, know your preacher did too. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Here we go. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through their preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord quite the introduction. You know, Paul's got a lot of words there and those opening four verses. But what he's doing, he's, he's already starting to lay the foundation. He's starting to, to lay the groundwork for the instruction, for the teaching that he is going to give to Titus in these following three chapters. And the first thing he does is he identifies himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God. A servant of God. Some of your translations might even say a slave to God. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't pull rank here. He's, he's showing humility and describing him, describing himself, because he could have been like, hey, Titus, it's your boss. You know, he could have been like, hey, Titus, this is Paul. I've planted a hundred churches. Listen to me, right? He could have, he could have gone all those different ways, but no, he opens with this, this statement that, that still kind of asserts his, his position a little bit, but it does it in a way that's full of humility, that's full of grace. Uh, and, and really he's already starting to exemplify some of the characteristics that he's gonna call his people to practice and embody themselves. He says, Paul, a servant of God. So he identifies himself, but then also in this salutation, he, he says why he's writing. And he's writing his letter uh, for, for the faith of the believers in Crete, that they might have knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. That This letter is for their benefit. This letter is to help them grow in their faith and see that where their faith is, is not just dependent on man, or is not dependent on man, but on God who offers eternal life. This is to help them know the truth of Jesus and apply them to their life, and, and so Paul is in this opening bit he 's letting them know this is the purpose of the letter of this letter that they would grow in their knowledge, their understanding of God, uh, and he describes a, a little bit of, of some of what God has done, God who offers eternal life that 's a promise that God has made, a promise that he 's made through christ and and Paul, even in this opening. Uh, starts to have language that lets us know we can trust in the promises of God. He says, God who does not lie. Um, that's weird to me that Paul would put that this early in the letter. But remember, the Cretans, they were known for lying. They're known for being a people who were dishonest, who are deceitful. And so Paul's like, look, this is a promise that God has given. We can bank on it. He, he, we can bank on it. He's reinforcing the integrity of God, the authenticity of the promises that God has given and these promises were given through Christ and they were made known to the Cretans uh, through Paul's ministry that, that, that Jesus, uh, as Jesus commanded him to preach. So that's the purpose of the letter. Then we see who it's addressed to, to Titus, uh, my son in the faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And that is the salutation. There is so much happening in that. But that's where Paul opens with. And then he goes straight to the heart of the letter, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul says, I left you in Crete to finish what we started. I left you in Crete so that you would help strengthen the roots of, of the churches that we planted there. I left you in Crete to help— help straighten out, to put the things in order of of the church there, and to help him do this, to help him finish what they started, to strengthen those roots, Paul commands Titus to appoint elders in every church, in every town. And these elders are to give leadership, guidance, direction, teaching, counsel, protection. And yes, they're to give example to these new Christians on the island of Crete, an example of a life that is devoted to the Lord, that is living out the Lord's commands in their life. They're to show an example of how the pieces of the Christian faith come together, how the pieces of the Christian life fit together, and how one life can be, or how one can live out their life rather in relation to the Lord, live out their faith in relation to the Lord, and in relation to those around them. This is the the ta- a huge task that has been given to these elders to serve the church in this capacity, to serve the church in this way, and so it's a huge task, a solemn calling, a, ca- a solemn calling to be sure. And so from here, Paul is going to show and list out the characteristics, really the requirements, uh, the character qualifications, if you will, of what makes an elder an elder. And and as he does this, he's going to show us some traits that need to be present in an elder's life and some things that need to be absent from an elder's life. And then once you find a a person that has this, uh, that that looks like this, then this is what the elder is supposed to do. So let's look at it. Verse 6 and 7. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So we'll stop there because you can already kind of see this is what we're looking for. This is what doesn't need to be there. And so you can kind of see this, this list even in six and in seven. But let's go ahead and and hit the question that maybe some of you are starting to ask. And if not, I'll I'll ask it for us. Um, We see in this text that it says uh, an elder must be faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe. And so uh, can Titus, uh, or, or women... Uh, allowed to be a part of this uh, office or allowed to serve the church in this capacity. Because what we see here is Paul commanding Titus to find godly men to serve the church as, as an elder. So let me say this, this, I believe this command that Paul has given to Titus is in no way diminishing the role, the contribution, or the status of women. Uh, we see uh, throughout Scripture that God affirms over and over and over again the full equality of men and women. Uh, yet we do see here in this text, as well as in some other uh, texts where Paul is is writing to other churches and other ministry situations, where Paul says again and again that this role of elder is to be held by men alone. Now at Grace City, along with many other denominations and traditions, we believe that the pattern that we see Paul give and the words that he gives to these different churches, that that's still binding on the church today. And so we would say that the role of elder is to be held by men and men alone. Now, we know that there are other denominations and other traditions that perhaps many of you are coming from that, that says, you know what, that, that these words of Paul were written to a specific church, to a specific context, in a specific time. And so there's uh, so a different uh, interpretation and application of this verse. And we know that many of those denominations, many of those traditions are Christ-loving, Bible-believing, strong, strong brothers and sisters in the faith. And so don't hear us discounting that in any way. It's just a, a great city we see that the difference in these roles between men and women serving within the church, in so many ways, that also reflects the difference of roles in the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, where there's perfect equality, perfect devotion, uh, perfect loyalty and love given from one person of the Trinity, one part of the Trinity to the other. There's no abuse Okay, there's, there's, there's no demeaning, there's no sinful subjugation, but there's praise, esteem, and devotion given from God the Father to the Son, and the Son to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit to the Son, and the Son to the Father, and all the ways that relationship flows. You see that equality and loyalty and devotion given amongst the members of the Trinity, yet each person of the Trinity fulfills their specific role because it achieves the one good purposes, the, the one, the, the good purposes of the one true God. And so we see this expression of that. And so that, that's why when Grace City, we look at this and we see this difference of roles uh mirroring that and reflecting that. That being said, we are aware also that this has been a doctrine that has been distorted, that has been twisted, that has been expressed in a broken way that has led to the subjugation, abuse of power, and demeaning of women. And we absolutely deny and condemn any broken expression uh, of this doctrine. At the same time, we would also um, push back against the notion that a belief in this doctrine automatically leads to that. We don't believe that. We believe that there's a healthy expression of this that affirms the equality and the dignity and the um, necessity of, of men and women in the church and, and both serving the Lord with their gifts to the full extent. Um, and I'll say this as well. Uh, as an elder team, we are constantly on guard of, of any type of twisting of this belief in Grace City that would in some ways where we're— um, unconsciously contributing to a broken expression of this. We're always looking for, are we, are we living this well? Are we expressing this well uh, to show this difference here? Uh, because we, we do believe, again, that, that women are needed and, and your voice is needed in, our, in, in the family, that your voice and contribution is needed. We believe that women can serve in every other function, role, and office in the church, save elder, uh, because you are a needed and valued part of the family of God, without whom... We would not be picturing the redeemed family of God or reflecting God's image to a lost and broken world. Because when humanity was created, God made male and female both in the image of God. It takes both the contributions of both to picture uh, God, to give God's image to a broken and lost world. Next week, we're going to look at the role of deacons in the church, and we're going to see how we believe at Grace City that is a servant leadership position in the church that can be filled by both men and women as well. And so we think it's a place where the woman's voice and contribution can be greatly used and needed and implemented to where women can express their giftings and those leadership and service capacities at the church. Here in this text, we believe Titus is to look for godly men. We believe that churches are to look for men to serve in the role of elder. And that being said, this is a point where I know many of you might want to go grab the trident in the back of the room and stab me in the heart with it. Um, yes, there is a trident in the back of the room because we're doing VBS and our VBS theme is shipwrecked. And so that's what the ship's wheel and the trident is in the back of it. Um, so uh, let me say this, like, I, I, again, I know many of you are, might be coming from denominations or traditions that have a, a different interpretation and application of this text. And let me say this, we want to have that conversation. I, we want to have the, the the because we want to learn. We, we we want to learn. We want to grow. We want to we want to do that for one another. One of the things that I am most proud of for Grace City, and um, you know, this is this isn't even a humble brag. This is me just bragging on you guys. All right, this is bragging on our church. I, I believe that at Grace City we have a a big tent when it comes to the theology of our church. Uh, because there are people that, that come from so many different backgrounds. We, we have people born and raised Southern Baptist, people born and raised Catholic, born and raised, you know, Methodist, born and raised Lutheran. We have so many different people that, that come into this church, but they find a home here, because I feel like we do a really good job of majoring on the major things. We have our closed-handed issues of salvation by, by, uh, by Christ, by grace, through Christ and Christ alone, His sacrificial work on the cross, on our behalf, the authority of God's Word, the belief in the Trinity, right? There, there's the, we have our closed handed issues that you see on our doctrine page of our website that 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 is what guides our church and so that's that's you know kind of the closed-handed issues that we have there and so uh, as long as people are um Uh, united behind that. We believe uh, that our doors are open, that we can have the conversation around so many other uh, theological issues and doctrinal issues, because again, we're going to focus in on the gospel. We're going to hold fast to the gospel. And these other uh, applications of our faith, we can always be in conversation with, because we can always be learning from one another. Because maybe uh, you know, we can, uh, do I have blinders on in one situation or another? How can we learn? How can we grow? How can we help one another? Continue to pursue Christ and apply his Word into our life. So again, if that's you, please put down your Trident. (laughs) If I'm even saying that right, Um, you might be like, "Is it chewing gum?" Because I just realized it's both the same word. Um, Because we we want to be able to have that conversation and uh, and again enter into that situation with grace, with humility to help one another grow and learn and serve. And I think the reason that we get. that we get defensive on it, and, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for it, but I'll say it. I think one of the reasons why we rightly should be on guard for this is because we have seen broken expressions of this, where it has led to abuses of power, demeaning and subjugation, and, and just and marginalization. And so I think Paul guards against that as he continues in his, in his letter because he's going to give other character characteristics character qualifications that need to be present in the elder's life that would help guard against those broken expressions of this doctrine and abuses of power. Because twice in that verse, he calls the elders to be blameless. Twice, two times over, not that they're to be perfect, not that they're to be without sin, but more so that they're to be above reproach. No one is sinless and perfect, but this is an instruction that the elder is to make every effort to live a life that is pleasing, that is honorable to the Lord. That there are uh, no blatant sins in, in his life that he's just flippantly ignoring, disregarding the teachings of Scripture on a habitual basis that that's not evident, that that's not the way that he lives, that's not the way that he operates, uh, among others. Basically, one, scho- one scholar put it this way, that there would be no, you know, apparent disqualifying character defect. He's to be blameless above reproach. He's to be the husband of one wife. Uh, polygamy was quite the issue on Crete, which is not necessarily a problem of today's society, but Paul's like, hey, look, that can't be an issue. You know, husband of but one wife. Uh, but this does uh, lead to, to some other application points for us, right? Um, that Someone can serve as an elder if they are single, if they are a widower, this doesn't preclude that, but rather this is a a teaching that if if a man is married, that it's, it's sexual fidelity towards his spouse. And there's also the conversation around this. If, uh, if someone has been divorced, uh, can he become an elder? Uh, and, and so we believe that this passage is speaking to current traits and characteristics and does not speak into past lifestyle. And so the context and the setting of this lends itself to the interpretation that divorce is not an automatic disqualifier uh, from the office, but it should be carefully uh, carefully considered and prayerfully weighed uh, before uh, they're given the office of elder so as not to accidentally encourage. Or endorse uh, the practice of kind of a, a premature ending of a marriage. And so he says, a husband of but one wife. Um, and it's, it's uh, Paul's really has a, a few phrases here that are speaking to. Um, the, the, the man's ministry in the home because the next phrase uh, says um, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient um, that, that one's tough for me just a little bit because um, that made it sound like my kids are crazy and that's not what I'm talking about <laughs> uh, why that one's tough for me is because like, you can't make someone believe something, right? And we believe in Scripture that that salvation is divine work of God that happens in someone's heart, that happens in someone's life. So like the father can't force his children to believe. So what's Paul saying here? Another uh, passage of Scripture where Paul is talking about the qualifications of elder is 1 Timothy 3. We're actually going to be there next week. Um, But uh, in it, he talks about uh, how children are to be obedient in the home. And so when you kind of put these together, it helps you see that Paul's giving a picture, again, of ministry and leadership in the home. Do they respond to the ministry of the father in the home, and they're not wild and disobedient to them. Uh, Do they respond to the gospel picture that he's given in in the home? And so, uh, because if that ministry, if that leadership is missing in the home, it's most likely going to be missing in the church. Is he already giving a picture to those in his home to follow? And so we see some of these qualities that must be there. Verse 7 are the qualities are describing that should be absent. Um, You know, uh, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not dishonest. Uh, All traits that should be absent from the elder. You can almost hear Paul saying like, look, just get someone who's not going to fly off the handle. We're looking for somebody that's going to be a stable, calming presence and giving leadership to the church. And then verse 8, Paul continues, uh, again, look for what must be present. He says, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Okay, remember the setting, those cretans <laughs> And I feel like I'm punching on them a little bit. But they, they were dishonest drunkards and criminals. And, and here Paul saying, look, find those men. Find those men who have responded to the gospel of Christ and showing it with their control, with their uh, discipline, with their integrity, with their honesty, because their lives are countercultural. Their lives are countercultural because with their lives, they're showing how the pieces fit together. Their lives are showing how the family piece, the job piece, the the church piece, the faith piece, how all of it goes together. And with their life, they're showing how someone can live a godly life in an ungodly world. And then in verse 9, he says, When you find these men, this is what they are to do. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Encourage one another with sound doctrine. Refute those who oppose it. And, and encourage and hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Bottom line, the elder holds to the gospel. The elder holds to the gospel— this message that Christ loves you so much, that He loves you so much that He took your sin onto Himself. Now, this has nothing to do with your goodness or with nothing to do with your lack of goodness, but that Christ would take your sin onto Himself, be the sacrifice for us on the cross, and enable a way for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be reconciled, adopted into the family of God. And this is solely dependent on Christ's depth, on the depth of love that Christ has for you. Nothing to do with your effort, everything to do with His effort and with his love. That's the gospel message. And this is what the elders are holding on to. This is what the elders are to encourage the church with. Encourage us in the faith with. Of Christ's love. Of Christ's deliverance. Of Christ's work on our behalf. And the elders to hold firmly to it in every possible way. So much so that when others come against it, they're able to refute it. They're able to contest the falsehood. Able to reject that false teaching. So maybe someone starts to say, yeah, God loves you, but you really gotta prove it. Yeah, God loves you, but you gotta, you gotta clean yourself up before you can come to God. The elder can step and say, no, 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 no. That's gospel plus. And if it's gospel plus, it's no gospel at all. The gospel is that Christ loves you. He's done it. He's done it on your behalf. He's done it on my behalf. We can just trust in him. We can just rest in this and the gospel. The, the elder holds firmly to the gospel and encourages the church with that, and then begins to show how that gospel impacts their relationships with their spouse, with their with their kids, with their work, and how it ex- how it's expressed in their daily living. They they give that example. They give that picture, and it's one of the roles of the elder, and it is intrinsic to the position. And so here's the deal. If a picture is worth a thousand words, a good elder is worth a thousand sermons. A good elder is worth a thousand sermons because they teach, they proclaim, they illustrate a life that honors Christ. If a good elder is worth a thousand sermons, that also lets us know why it's so damaging when there's a bad one. Why it's so damaging when there's a bad elder. And maybe many of you have seen that. And if you have seen that, if you've lived through that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you've seen broken expressions of this. Maybe it was an elder that that was was not slow to anger, but was cool but was quick tempered. Maybe it was someone that was just so drunk off the power that he thought he had that he, he brought about division, that he brought about, you know, shaming and disgracing and marginalizing and pushing people to the sides and saying you don't belong and thinking he could be the judge. If that was you and that's the picture that you got of the Christian faith, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a broken expression. It's a broken, broken expression. There are many that, that claim the title and the role and the authority of elder without living the qualifications of an elder. And maybe they have elements of Christianity, but they don't have them in the proper place, and they're just trying to give a different picture altogether. And so, yes, maybe some of you, are maybe even de-churched because of bad elders, bad leadership, someone giving you the wrong picture of a fallen Christ, and you thought, if that's it, I'm out. And it, it turns out there was a similar problem in Crete. Look at how Paul addresses it, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of, the, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> you know, like, like, like Paul is, is not pulling any punches there. He's saying, look, they're, they're deceiving you. They're liars. They're spreading false doctrine and they're leading others astray. And it is, they're in it for the money. And look, these are people within the church. These were people within the church that had elements of the truth, but they were distorting it and giving the wrong picture. And we could get into kind of how they were doing it, but but, but Paul is saying, look, there are going to be some that might try to dissuade. And apparently they had uh, certain amounts of charisma and influence and power because they were leading entire families astray, and they're giving the wrong picture. And so Paul writes, hey, flat out, refute their teaching, refute the doctrine. And Titus, you can't do this by yourself. Get elders to help. Get elders to step in, and they can help do this with both word and deed. Their life will reveal the truth of their doctrine. These false teachers were claiming to know God, but their actions were showing that they did not. And so Titus, again, is to choose men whose lives reveal they know they know. God. They know his gospel and their lives have been changed because of it. Their life life and their faith informs their actions and they show how the pieces of the Christian faith come together and just as important they show which pieces do not belong. And so it's in this way where the, the life and teaching of the elders encourages, sets the course and helps the church hold firmly to the trustworthy message of Christ. That being said, Church, hear me when I say it. The elder is not perfect. I know because I'm one of them. I'm flawed and I'm sinful and I stand as much need of Christ's grace as any other person in this room. And every single elder on our team will tell you the exact same thing. We are not perfect. We are far from it. But in this way, we can actually give another picture as well. And it's in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16 where Paul they were lived among they were they were Cretans themselves, right? They were the liars and the gluttons and the drunkards and the criminals and those that you know everyone judged. And they're like that was me, but I found Christ. And Christ found me. Christ saved me. And he, if He brought about this change in my life, it can happen for you. It can happen for you. And so in this way, an elder can 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 picture and point to the redemption that all can have through faith in Christ and the love that He has given. And at the end of the day, that's what the elders do hold firmly to the gospel, picture it in word and deed, and be an example of the grace of Christ. And so often it's an example, the elder can give an example of this by confessing sin first and showing the hope and the grace that Christ gives and the life that comes because of the grace that he's given. And so as, as, best, I've, as best I can throughout this whole morning, I've tried to— um, Refer to elder as, as, as plural as I can because I do think, um, that churches are best served when there's a plurality of leadership with this because I don't think one elder can be the grand supreme example of all this but a a group of elders, a plurality of leadership. Elders can help each other see their own blind spots. Uh, Elders can help one another see the sin in their life, call one another out on it in a loving and graceful way and, and, and disciple each other and then collectively, the elders can give an even better picture of how the pieces of life and faith and doctrine and family come together to reflect a life that is redeemed by Jesus, that loves Jesus, that is put on mission by Jesus as well. So what do we do with this? And I'm running over on time, so I'll try to make this quick. What do we do with this? I'm sure, hey, I made this joke earlier. I'm sure none of you got up this morning and were like, I hope he preaches on elders. <laughs> like, you know, I know you didn't get up this morning. And was like, elders, yeah, I'm here. You know, like, I know that's not it. So what do we, what do, we do with this? How do we, like, what, what can you walk out the doors with on this? I, I do think you can take the principle of this text and apply it to many facets of life. Anybody, David, what do you mean by this? Okay, so again, what the elders were doing in the churches, they were given a picture of faith lived out well take that principle and apply it to different facets of your life. So if you're a high school student, wonder what it looks like to live out your faith in college. If you're a college student, wonder what it looks like to live out your faith when you hit the working world. Or maybe you're in the medical community or legal community or whatever venue you're in. If you're wondering, what I want a picture of what life and faith looks like lived out in these arenas, then find people. In, in In college, or find people in that next phase of life, or find people in your profession, men or women, that match the characteristics that you see listed here because they will give you a picture. faith lived out. They'll give you a picture of what it looks like to be someone that's been redeemed by Christ, that's still growing in his relationship with Christ and trying to be on mission for him. So I think you can take this principle and apply it to multiple facets of your life to help you grow in your faith, grow in life and godliness, and connect and see uh, how faith is relevant to your day-to-day living. That being said, This is such an important facet of our discipleship and of our growth in the faith that Scripture does call us as believers who have gathered together to worship together in a community of faith as a church that we are to set out from ourselves elders who will serve the church, teach the Scripture, refute false teaching, encourage and exemplify a life that honors Christ. And so one thing I'm going to ask you to do with this is for you to help us fill this role at Grace City. We have nomination forms at the Connection Center in the back. And if you know of some men in the church that you believe could serve the church in this capacity and in this way, we want to know and hear from you. And what we'll do is we'll follow up with that individual to see if they, in fact, desire to serve the church in this way. We'll also look at and see, and well, part of the process is them submitting to really an evaluation. Does their life match the characteristics that we see in Scripture? And then once more, if we get through that, is this the right season of life for that elder to serve the church at this time, and can they take on this responsibility in this way? And then, uh, and then really at the end of that, that's when that person would then come and join the elder team after, uh, there's a couple more steps, but that's roughly the process that we take someone through to see, are they uh, matching this, the qualifications of scripture and could they serve the church in this way? Because it's an incredibly vital, significant, important role, for, important role for our church. In the past six years, we've had strong elders who I believe have, have served with humility, grace, and steadfast devotion, and we want that trend to continue. We want that trend to continue because if we get the wrong elders in place, if we get the wrong elders in place, then that's the pride run amok can paint the wrong picture, can hinder the ministry, and distort the picture of Christ that we're trying to give. We are praying that we'll have the right individuals to serve the church in a spirit of humility, spirit of grace, mercy, and a desire to, to show and to follow Christ in all things. Someone who's willing to say, hey, I am chief among sinners. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst example of a sinner. But I'm an example of one that Christ has reached, one that Christ has redeemed, and one that Christ has loved. And it's happened for me. It can happen for you. No one is too far gone. No one is beyond the love of Christ. No one is beyond his hope. That's the gospel message that the elder can hold us to. And so church... Pray for us as we uh, do this process of on-ramping some more elders on our team. uh, Pray that the right men would come and join so that we could continue uh, to create a church where people can come and experience the love of Christ and know that they've been invited to join in the redeeming work that he is doing. And in this way, through all of it, help one another discover life and life to the full in Christ. Christ alone. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your hope. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for your grace in our life. Uh, God, we do thank you for your word that corrects, rebukes, and, and, and counsels, and gives us guidance. And God, I pray that we would uh, learn from it. I pray that we would uh, follow its instruction, all of it, Lord God. And so, uh, God, I also pray for humility for our church in this, uh, because we know that these are— uh, decision points for our church that oftentimes other churches that love you, that want to follow you, come to different conclusions on. So God, I pray in all of it, there's a spirit of humility and a spirit of discernment, and a a, a spirit of always seeking you, your wisdom, your direction, your guidance for our church, so that, God, we would always be quick uh, to confess sin, quick to confess what is wrong, and quick to cling to what is right and to what is true. So, God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us see uh, the individuals that you've called to serve Grace City in this capacity, so that at the end of the day, God, we continue to give a picture of of your love in our life, of your love uh, for those who are far from you, so that all can come and know your hope and know the hope of the gospel. God, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.